You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bott and Megan Gesner. Thanks for joining us today, Poison Pals. We know you're excited. So let's get going. No dawdling. Yeah. (laughs) Megan has had a rough go of it. She is recording this from her phone, Poison Pals. So if you hear that the audio is not what you are used to, it's because Megan is not a quitter. She does not give up. So I do apologize if the audio is shitty chat, but let's get into it. It is Haridi's turn today. So I'm very excited and I get to sit and just relax, just relax. Gather around the campfire, Poison Pals, because we're going to talk about something random. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is a story of the golden goose that lays the golden egg. Science version. Let me take you down a story lane. Here we go. So it all starts with this man, Senator William Proxmire. He is the Democratic senator of Wisconsin. And I don't know if this is still true, but at the time, he was the longest serving public officer or like someone who's held the longest service in public office from 1957 to 1989. And he was known for being mindful of money. Some would say straight up stingy. <laughs> he was a he was a stickler. He was a stickler about how the government spent spent taxpayer money, which sounds great and mm-hmm. is. However, he felt spending taxpayer money on medicine, healthcare, scientific research was wasteful. In addition to military, interesting, interesting, <laughs> yeah. But he practiced what he preached. He never took campaign money and would make the news only for spending a grand total of $200 out of his own pocket, mind you, for his campaigns. He felt his colleagues should fly coach, for example, and not in private jets or first class and so on. He would often kind of look down upon them or just kind of waggle his finger at people at his colleagues for spending lavish amounts of money to decorate their offices with these nice furnitures and so on and so forth. So that's the kind of guy he was. Some of it I admire. Some of it I question, like the not wanting to spend on healthcare and education. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did he like to spend taxpayer dollars on? That's a good question. I did go into that research, but from the vague drudges of my memory. I believe it was more like things that uh, would directly directly benefit the taxpayers and something that they would see in their actual lifetime. So possibly like roads and infrastructure, you know, things like that. Because with research, you don't always see the benefit right away or the research may not pan out to anything. That's that's just sort of the name of the game with scientific research, uh, unfortunately or fortunately. Okay. So In an attempt to prove his point, Senator Proxmire started the Golden Fleece Awards in which every month he would hand out an award to the most useless, ridiculous, shameful, and just straight up bonkers project that the government has funded. And here are a few examples. I honestly, Megan and and Poison Pals, if you look up Golden Fleece Awards, the first uh, search will be Wikipedia. I highly recommend going to that and just running through the the list when you have some downtime because it is quite hilarious. Okay. So 
but I'll give you a few examples right now. For example, the very first award was given to a project funded under the, or not funded, a project under the National Science Foundation, which spent $83,000, which is $465,000 in today's money, to figure out why people fall in love. After hearing that, I'm like, okay, I, I kind of see his point. Will understanding why people fall in love move the needle in any way? Does it solve a huge problem or fill a massive need in the world? Probably not. Also, is this a research question we could ever conclusively find the answer to? So that is Senator Proxmire's point in all of this, meaning you could spend $83,000 or $83 million and the result would be the same. A Golden Fleece Award was then given to the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, for spending $57,000 to study the physical measurements of 432 airline stewardesses, which included the distance from knee to knee while sitting. I know, massive. we're both massively eye-rolling right now. And the length of the buttocks. I wish I was joking. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, while you react to that, I'm going to see how much that is in today's money. How many stewardesses were they measuring? 432. So quite a, quite a I'm lot. Try, I'm doing the math of like why a, a study like that would cost $57,000. And if they are compensating each person, then I get that. But I'm also like, this was sometime between what, the 60s and the 80s. There's no way they're paying each stewardess that, um, that right. much money. Right. This is specifically around the 1980s, so 1985. So they, in today's money, they spent around $160,000 on this very niche uh, study. And, and it goes on. The, again, the National Science Foundation comes around again. They spent $103,000, and this is 1985, $103,000 to compare aggressiveness in sunfish that drink tequila versus gin. I mean, I love that study. I mean, I think that's, I think that would be an interesting study for God knows what. Yeah, I'm more okay with, I'm more okay with that study than the aviation study with the stewardesses. Right. But, um, yeah. But poor fish. The tequila and the gin thing. I know. Yeah. That's mm. like animal abuse. Some fish are huge. Though. Are they? But yeah, I'm oh. like, okay. So, so many questions. Like why, what, what does the state of Wisconsin have any business doing <laughs> researching sunfish which are Whoa. in the, the ocean okay did you just look up sunfish? i did They're and huge. i'm mind blown <laughs> yeah what <laughs> so what i don't understand what's happening i'm so confused how did they even wrangle enough sunfish to give them tequila versus gin why sunfish okay right. now i have so many more questions <laughs> I now I need to go down and rabbit hole about sunfish, but that's for later, a later time. Okay. So we'll we'll put a pin in that and then we'll head to the next one, which is our last one. The United States Department of Defense spent three thousand dollars, a modest amount, to determine if people in the military should carry umbrellas in the rain. Huh. Okay. It's just it's just wackadoodle. That, I mean, I could that could yeah, like that one I could see having a little more application. You know what? You know what's so bizarre, Megan? I was saying this to Dave, like I was listing out these because I thought it was just so laughable and comical. And mm -hmm. he said the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. He was like, out of all the ones you listed, I can see some kind of application mm -hmm. with the umbrella one. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. Well, yeah. Like, like, I mean, 
it's it's true. I don't know what you the information you've given me for that one study. It, does it just stop at we just want to see if military folks need umbrellas in the rain? Like, does it stop at that? Or is there like a secondary intention of, you know, um, we have folks who su- suffer from PTSD mm. and does raindrops trigger something, oh. especially if they were in the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. where it's humid and probably monsooning all the time. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Like, should umbrellas be funded for folks that might be struggling with PTSD? Mm. So that's where my brain okay. goes. But if, there, if there's no additional context like that, then it's just like, Huh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I who knows? I didn't go. I, I this is all from Wikipedia, and they don't go more into it unless you click on the uh-huh. reference tab. But that is a good thought. Very good benefit of the doubt for the study. <laughs> okay, I know. I'm, I'm trying to be so cautious. Yeah. <laughs> trying to be so rational. But you could be right. Yeah. I don't know. Even though I went through a good smattering of, of government sectors, the majority of the Golden Fleece awards targeted scientific research, and. Not a surprise, science is about curiosity, pushing the boundaries, and seeking answers to the impossible. So it's bound to result in some wacky, wacky research questions. It's also difficult Mm -hmm. to predict ahead of time how impactful a study will be. But ironically, what was intended to originally highlight the sheer waste of taxpayer dollars on useless research, like scientific research, ended up showcasing how sometimes the most obscure and odd research studies have the most impact. So I'm going to tell you about two of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should have said this from the top. I, I decided this will be a two-parter, but we'll only do the first part today, obviously. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about two of them. And the first one is a snail that eats fish and can kill 700 people at once. Ooh. Let's do it. Okay. Megan, you have got to gotcha. Okay. We're not going to do it right now, but we'll have to post this clip as probably like a promo or something. But after we watch this or after this recording, you got to watch this. I'll send you a clip. Okay. All right. So there is something called a cone snail. Are you familiar with cone snails? I am familiar with cone snails. If you step on them, there's, yeah, you can get poisoned. Yeah. They are quite venomous. Right. Yes. And I'll, I'll explain why. They seem cute and innocuous, but these snails are marine murderers. These cone snails eat fish. And I knew that from just like reading about it, but I honestly did not believe it until I saw it for my with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. And it is so unnerving, man. It is quite unnerving because these cone <laughs> snails, like they're, I would say they're, they're medium size, like maybe like this big, but they're eating full size mm-hmm. fish, definitely twice, maybe definitely twice their size, maybe a little bit like two and a half times their size is maximum. But it is quite gnarly how they're able to just like suck them into their, their bodies. Yeah. Do they have teeth? They don't, you know, like some, some snails, they they don't don't have have teeth. Like they just like suck you in to their whole body. It is nuts. (laughs) Like you have to watch it. Like, and it's within seconds. It's not like the slow process. They just, and you're gone. It's, it's gnarly. Okay. So they're able to do this because of their unassuming proboscis, which secretly she's a venomous harpoon that paralyzes its prey. And I was reading, I was watching so many videos on this um, in detail, and it really reminds me of stingrays and the way that they have their harpoon, like their harpoon, where they can just kind of, it's, I think it is retractable as well, but they definitely do the same kind of motion where it comes out 
and comes back in. Right. It unsheaths Correct. itself. It breaks the skin barrier and then comes yeah, back exactly. in. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it breaks skin for the cone snail. It, I think it's just like – it's almost like open. They just have to open like their little flap and it goes – yeah, like that. Then the cone snail will swallow its prey whole. So what it does is the fish will be just like swimming, swimming, swimming by. And then the cone snail will just like yeah. kind of just beckon it closer. And then it goes like just like harpoons it. And then the fish is um, oh, in, punctures, punctures it. it. And it works so fast. It's almost instantaneous yeah. where the fish is immediately paralyzed. And then the cone snail gets to work right away to just envelop it with its like big big mouth and this it's just gone <laughs> it's just gone in seconds uh so cone snails are found almost anywhere in warm tropical seas in the indian and pacific ocean along the coast of australia the caribbean red seas and along the coast of florida they're truly uh-huh. truly everywhere cone snails are highly dangerous for humans and certainly can be fatal so one jab by one of these cone snails contains enough venom to theoretically kill 700 people And cone snails are part of just a handful of marine animals, as we know, that are venomous. And their venom is a chemical cocktail of mostly peptides, which are shorter chains of amino acids, somewhere in the ballpark of Mm -hmm. around 200 different peptides that aid in sending the prey into an exocytotoxic shock and rendering rendering them paralyzed in movement and vision. So most cone snails will tag and bag their food. Once they puncture their prey, the toxins get to work almost instantaneously to incapacitate the fish, and then the snail will swallow the fish whole in a few seconds. However, two scientists and partners in the scientific journey, Lourdes Cruz and Toto Oliveira, were interested in a different type of cone snail that deployed a slightly different method of attack. So I'll briefly talk about Cruz and Oliveira. They both grew up in the Philippines and both went to the same university, incidentally, but they only linked up later in their careers for their mutual interest in cone snails. Toto collected shells since he was a child and was interested in cone snails from the very start. In fact, he wanted to study cone snails in undergrad, but his advisor was like, you're not going to find anything useful there. Don't even bother. But Toto eventually went for it anyway, and thank God he did, because along with Cruz, they zeroed in on the Esprella cone snails and their hunting strategy, which they had never seen before. Esprellas will still sting the fish, but then the fish is still swimming around. Unlike, you know, other cone snails, the fish is just immediately paralyzed. The fish will swim and swim like nothing ever happened. But after an hour, the fish suddenly starts to slow down until eventually it falls to the bottom of the ocean for the cone snail to eat. So there's this delayed paralysis happening here, which indicated to Cruz and Oliveira that there might be a different chemical reaction happening than in other species of cone snails. So Cruz and Oliveira, along with the help of the two undergrad students, Craig Clark and Michael McIntosh, they start to inject varying combos of these peptides into the into mice's skin, but they're not seeing anything. Then after several weeks of just doing these different combinations, one of the undergrad students, Craig, he wonders out loud what would happen if they injected the venom directly into the mice's brain. So Toto's like, ah, I don't know about that. (laughs) He's not super keen on that idea, but Craig's very gung-ho. He's like, we got to try it. Like, there's no harm in giving it a a go. 
So Toto's like, Toto admits, he's like, you know, I was skeptical. I wasn't really sure about the idea, but Clark was so insistent on at least just giving it a try. And he goes to a different level of commitment where this undergrad student, he learns how to do cranial injections from the College of Medicine. So he's kind of like, there's no excuse at this point. We got to do it. <laughs> so he returns to the lab and Toto's like, okay, fine, go for it. And he injects this venom directly into these mice's brains. And Clark ran his first experiment, and the results were big. Immediately, the mice were displaying a wide range of effects, sometimes completely opposite effects. Some mice were super hyper, while others were super sedated. Some were shaking, some were scratching, some were falling over due to loss of balance. And the results were so oddly specific that they knew that they were onto something. These peptides were clearly not all paralytic toxins. They each had their own character and characteristics that were either activating or inhibiting different messages in the brain. So slowly over the course of six months, the team mapped out the individual peptides and determined their purpose until finally they found the one they were looking for, which was called, which they, I think, named omega conotoxin. Omega-conotoxin was a paralytic to frogs and fish, but not mice. So essentially, only in amphibians, but not mammals. Mm -hmm. Omega-conotoxin blocks calcium channels in fish and frogs in the brain. Calcium channels act as the fuel in the engines of like little ubers in your body. And these ubers carry messages along your nerves to tell your body, for example, like move your hand. And once the message reaches, your hand moves. Omega-conotoxin essentially blocks that fuel going into the Uber so the message can't go anywhere. And thus, you can't move your hand. Vertebrates like mice and humans also utilize the same calcium channels for brain signaling, yet the omega conotoxin wasn't causing paralysis in mice. So they are trying to kind of work backwards. Why does this happen? And they came to the solution that the answer lies in evolution. Although mammals Mm. have the same calcium channels, we use them differently to frogs and fish. Frogs and fish primarily use these calcium channels for muscle movement, whereas mammals, like us, we use it to feel pain. So that was a really big revelation because omega-conotoxin could be used as a viable non-opioid pain reliever. Mm. This discovery led to the very first omega-conotoxin analog, which was an FDA, got FDA approved. Is The drug is called Prealt, a generic name is iconotide. Prealt is a refillable pump that gets implanted in the stomach and gets refilled every few months. This is a non-opioid alternative. It is not addictive, and it has been life-changing for the patients who use them, specifically cancer patients, people who have AIDS, and other chronic conditions who are battling chronic pain. Further research is ongoing to see if there could be a neurological use of conotoxin for other disease states like epilepsy and diabetes. But this is really just, we think, like the tip of the iceberg in terms of finding alternatives to mm-hmm. opioids, which would be amazing. But that's essentially it, it mm-hmm. for part one. I am absorbing it. Anything that has to do whenever we talk about a toxin that is hyper-specific to one creature's biological system versus Um, It doesn't have any impact on a totally different animal system like that. I will always be in awe at that, that type of evolution. I I need to re-listen to our episode about the red queen hypothesis or um, because I, 
I'm pretty sure Dylan spoke a little bit about what that type of evolution is called. I I have such minimal, minimal knowledge in like evolution theory and all that. But um, like, I understand the basic Mm -hmm. concept that it makes sense for a cone snail to have um, in fish and and amphibians to be integrated in this web. Um, and that makes sense for fish and amphibians to be paralyzed by this, 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 um, toxin Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they're living in the same environment. Mm -hmm. Like I get that. I get the very general idea, but it's just wild to me that the fact that mice evolved to not, you know, maybe to, to, to not be in an aquatic environment. And that was all it took for uh, mammals to not ever be impacted by this one toxin. And that's crazy. That's insane. So that's very cool. And then, and it's just also proof, like it totally, it is the tip of the iceberg. Like, we'll, we'll go back to tell me again, when was this discovered? Like, when did we start recognizing this? Uh, yeah. Like when was a study again with um, injecting the toxin into the mice's brains? Good question. I don't know. I think it was, let me just see when this was um, FDA approved first. Okay. Well, cause I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying like this, uh, there's endless possibilities out there. And I, I bet the people who work specifically with venoms for drug therapy and stuff like that, like it, it must feel so overwhelming to know that there's a creature out there that probably has some sort of toxin or is venomous or whatever, that could be the answer to so many things, but we just don't, we haven't maps maps their peptide cocktail essentially and we don't know how it applies yeah exactly i agree and to answer your question this was in Mm -hmm. it was formally discovered like the actual experiment in their lab where they're like oh shoot there's this Mm -hmm. omega conotoxin that happened in the 80s and then in the 90s they started to do like actual clinical trials and then it was fda approved in 2005 2005 yeah so it's been yeah. around. So what do we know? Yeah, it's been around, which confuses yeah. me because we're clearly in an opioid epidemic, but we know that who's to blame for a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, we um, so this this drug, sorry, what's the what's the brand name or the generic name? Zyconotide. Zyconotide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean I wanna know what went into play if we knew it's a non-addictive opioid alternative mm-hmm. op- opiate alternative whatever i want to know what's what goes into play with it not being well known this is the first time i've Same. ever heard of it you know what i, I don't mean? even think we learned about it in pharmacy school which really is bizarre yeah. i don't it, that tells me it's barely used and i don't really know why that is uh, maybe there's just not enough research on it but again it was approved it's already been approved in 2005 yeah. so that tells me there there's clearly enough research for it to get fda approved so yeah, where's like the gap? Sure. Where are we missing? I wonder if yeah, it might just be damn expensive. That's what I was gonna say. When when you said it's an analog, like we started developing an analog of the original toxin, mm-hmm. that means we're synthesizing it Correct. in a lab. We're not pulling it from the right. Correct. So there's no reliance on no. the 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 cone snail Correct. anymore. So I wonder if creating that analog is just really expensive, as opposed to synthesizing opiates is something that we've been doing for so long and it's not as expensive. It, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I definitely think this is probably like, let me just see how much does it cost? Like how much? And you have to also know that it's, 
it's like a pump. Like you, you have to, it's a device, oh, right? Like you, it's a implantable sure. device. So yeah. maybe not a lot of people want to do yeah. that. Uh, let's see. Right. Is it only available as an implant? As of now? Yes. And it says it doesn't seem like it's expensive. I I mean, this is just a very rough estimate, but it says it's around a thousand dollars for a supply of one milliliters. But then I also see that it's fifty dollars a month. So I don't know. I think you know because it, it, it. I'm assuming it's not as expensive as it would because it was again approved in 2005. So it's been a while. It's not like it's a brand yeah. new drug. Yeah. But. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Like that's that puzzles me. So I might do a little more research um, before we do our part two, so that we can have a little closure on what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, like why is this drug not getting love? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. <laughs> and maybe there's good reason. Maybe there's good reason it's not as um, lauded in the medical community or not as talked mm-hmm. about. Because it's supposed to be mm. way stronger than morphine, and you can sort of like dial the pump. Uh, so you can kind of dose it accordingly, mm-hmm. but it it does the job. So I just find it so fascinating, as you said, Megan, that it specifically works on our pain receptors. I mean, like it's just perfect, yeah. you know. And this is mm-hmm. so. Oh, so I I'm thinking about the study again. So they were injecting this toxin mm-hmm. through the mice's skin at first, yeah, and nothing was happening. Yeah. But what they didn't know during that time is that the mice were actually experiencing relief from pain or like, does that make sense? Because you said they, they had been injecting it through the mice's skin for months. Mm-hmm. Nothing was noticeable. There's nothing to note, nothing in changes of behavior, no paralysis, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't until they did the brain injection that they noticed changes in behavior. So my question is when they were injecting it through the skin, because now we're using it as something that is in, it pumped, right? It's a, it's an implant where it pumps the toxin in or whatever. Yeah. Does that mean that the mice prior to the brain injection, yeah. they were feeling pain relief? I don't know. Does yeah. That, that does make sense. I don't know. That's a great question. Cause there's not, obviously that's not really something you can measure unless you stab them and then they're right. totally fine with it or something, you know, but I don't know. That's a great point. I'm struggling with the jump from we saw a difference injecting it directly into our brain to now we've developed the drug and we're using it as an implant in our mm-hmm, stomachs, mm-hmm. but we're not putting it in our brains. Yeah. So why? <laughs> yeah, I actually did see that there were some e- intrathecal studies, meaning intrathecal means in your brain. Mm. So I think they did try to do it at first, but then they found that doing it in your stomach produces a similar effect or exactly the same effect. Because obviously intrathecal is very, very invasive, probably the most invasive thing you can do. Mm-hmm. So if you can do it somewhere else with the same effect, then why not, you know? Um, but yes, lots of questions because I have it here. Start your patients on the only non-opioid intrathecal option. So it is an intrathecal infusion. It's still given that way, but I think they've mm-hmm. now developed it since 2005 as a stomach pump mm-hmm. pretty much or stomach device. How interesting. Yeah, that's crazy, 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 crazy. But yeah, I'll do more research on that and uh, we'll follow back up next week with the, another. Yeah, so there's, yeah. if you look at Golden Goose, so now it's not called Golden Fleece and, or is it, Golden Fleece was kind of not derogatory, but kind of like a condescending name for it. They have now since upgraded the name to the Golden Goose Awards and it's been going on ever since the 80s. <laughs> and some of the most 
like so some of the most recognizable inventions in terms of science and technology has come out of there. And I'll give you one example since I'm not going to be talking about it, but um, laser eye surgery. That came out of the Golden Goose Awards. Uh, it was just a total fluke of uh, an idea and it was so wacky and it got that award for that because now it's it's like one of the biggest things ever to get your get your eyes fixed through lasers. <laughs> We're bionic humans, guys. <laughs> I I am really enjoying learning this because, you know, if you think about it, it's so fitting. Someone, people are sitting around a table and they're like, how, how can we permanently fix eye vision? Lasers, <laughs> man. Lasers let's use eyes. lasers. <laughs> let's Let's burn the shit out of your corneas oh and it should work. I, like, I will – if you're interested, Megan, I can give a little synopsis on how that was found out. It It's not like a long story, please. but it is kind of interesting how how the heck – like how do you get from point A to point B? It doesn't make any sense sometimes. <laughs> please. I, I'm down. Like, yeah, let's let's hear the synopsis because okay. I don't know anything. Okay. Oh, do you want me to do it right now? Yeah. Okay. I can actually pull it up. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Let's see. Let us see. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to read it directly from the Golden Goose Awards website, which is goldengooseaward.org. Okay, so this was funded by the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation. We've come a long way, National Science Foundation. (laughs) Okay, so nearly 30 years ago, a graduate student at the University of Michigan Center for Ultrafast Optical Science experienced an accidental laser injury to his eye. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Fortunately, his vision was not severely effective, affected. However, the evident, the evident exact and perfectly circular damage produced by the laser led to an exciting collaboration. Eight years later, that collaboration developed a bladeless approach to corrective eye surgery. The new procedure, also known as bladeless LASIK, uses a femtosecond laser rather than a precision scalpel uh, to cut into the human cornea before it is reshaped to improve the patient's vision. Since 2002, 24 million people have benefited from the bladeless LASIK approach, which limits complications and broadens the pool of eligible patients. It is now considered the gold standard in the field. That is phenomenal. Absolutely incredible. What? Uh, Even without knowing the story, I... Yeah, I've I've always been so um, in awe of the idea of LASIK that the, like that you can re that you can mold your eye right. to be better that it, it doesn't doesn't damage it it makes it better like the, <laughs> one the body is crazy and two like just the science who would have thought lasers you like, know like what what it doesn't make any sense I mean okay <sighs> this is just a fun little site to to sh- to like look through and the the mm. titles are very fun like this one says too fast too curious <laughs> i like it okay oh maybe i'll read one more because i remember reading this before and it was really fun sure. or it was, it was endearing I, I should say so this this one the 2022 golden goose awards it's called foldoscopes and frugal science paper microscopes paper microscope oh my god paper microscopes make science globally accessible and there's a picture of barack obama <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> picture picture a microscope. You're likely imagining a heavy metal base, a viewfinder tube to squint through, and knobs on the side to bring a tiny specimen to focus. I've always was terrible at using microscopes. It was always blurry, and I would just pretend <laughs> I was seeing something. Okay. 
An essential tool for science for over 400 years, microscopes have identified disease-causing bacteria, revealed the building blocks of living organisms, and introduced children to the joys of science. But in certain areas of the world, barriers to transport, training, and maintenance can make even standard microscopes inaccessible. Enter the chat. Manu Prakash and Jim Cybulski's response to the problem is the foldoscope, a paper microscope that can achieve powerful magnification and cost less than a dollar. It has been a little over a decade since the foldoscope's inception, but 1.8 million have already been distributed in over 160 countries, dramatically increasing accessibility to science. Foldoscopes have been used for everything from identifying agricultural pests to STEM education and refugee camps. But how was a seven several thousand dollar scientific instrument reimagined in paper form? So they basically use yeah, it's just paper. It's literally just like almost like origami, and then they have like one little glass lens, mm-hmm. and that's it. And you can it's all like folded up, and you just kind of do like IKEA style. Once you're there, you fold it up, yeah. and then once you're done with it, you fold it down, and then you move on to the next. So it's extremely portable and cheap, and able to be distributed yeah. anywhere. All right. Now, now see, that is, an, to me, a very intentional invention yes. that is meant to be affordable, yes. right? That is meant to be probably used by um, folks, uh, um, medical professionals or researchers or um, epidemiologists mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are working in different countries that don't have access Absolutely. to this stuff. So uh, my question here is, is more like, now, why is this on the Golden Goose website? Because I don't think it deserves that, that, you know, notoriety. Like this, this is to me is an invention that like makes sense. No, no, totally does. And shouldn't be. Well, <laughs> yeah. I guess the point of the Golden yeah. Goose Wars is the main criteria is it has to be government funded. So they were technically government funded. Right. So again, the NSF, okay. National Science Foundation has funded this and the National Institutes of Health, the NIH. So Interesting, yeah. interesting, good stuff. Very interesting, very, very interesting. Very cool. <laughs> really cool. All all of these were were so so fascinating. Yeah, very cool. And I'll t- I'll talk about a very interesting one, another interesting one next time. It's something that we all have experience with, so it has touched mm-hmm. all of our lives. Oh, okay. Yeah, a little okay. sneak peek for you. <laughs> okay, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Right. that's great thank you so much for this was a this was a okay, fun good. one this is one of those fun facts yeah, yeah. one that i can go i'll go to my friends and be like you guys will never believe yeah. this this is what okay. i like and you have to watch yeah. the cone snail eating fish oh my god okay i'll send you the clip I'll, afterwards or you can literally just search cone snail eating fish and it's a national geographic clip that's about two minutes long on it okay i'll do that right as i hang okay up. all right let's go into antidotes cool. um my antidote is that, oh, in a couple of days, I'll be departing San Diego for the, the great city of Philadelphia. <laughs> um, but shout out to Philly. I'm going out there to visit our very, very good friend, Drew. Um, and I'm just very excited to see him. It will be his birthday, oh, so his birthday this weekend. So I feel so lucky to be able to fly out and be there to celebrate him, celebrate with him. Yeah. That's my that's my antidote. It'll Love. just be really good to reunite with. with it's Drew. been a while. Yeah. When, when was the last time you saw Drew? Mm. Late last year. Oh, we we saw each other for my birthday in December, right? Or did you see him yes. before that? After that? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was the last okay. time. Right. La- late last year for your birthday. We saw. Okay. Yeah, that's the last time I saw him. That's right. 
All right. Um, my antidote is I'm potentially going to be staying longer in the U.S. I wasn't planning to, but I was. I gotta I'll be honest. Even though I I do really miss Dave. Like I I at first Megan had asked mm-hmm. me, "Do you miss Dave?" And I hope Dave doesn't watch listen to this, so I can say this. <laughs> uh, but I was gonna say. <laughs> This will be I the know, one episode you choose. Just because to he misses to. my voice so much, he just starts to listen to the podcast. Exactly. I wouldn't put it past him, to be honest. But, anyways, um, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> uh, yeah. Megan had asked me maybe like a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, like, oh, do you miss Dave? And I was very clear that I did not. And then, and the reason for that is like, you know what? You know, I'm going to see him. So, no big deal. But I will say I do have a threshold right. when it gets to about three weeks or four weeks of us not seeing each other in person. I do start to severely miss him and I start to droop like a flower that has no water. Um, so and I it's like we we can feel each other's energy. He's feeling very low about it, too. So that's with that being said, I was getting sad about leaving because I had been really enjoying spending time with my parents. Like we are three old people in a pod yeah. uh, together when we hang out, as Megan <laughs> has seen oftentimes, many times before. So yes. I'm glad that I get to spend the extra time with my parents. And I am saying that because my dad listens. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, I do. Yes. I do like spend, spend time. Your Papa Papa B will be asleep. I know that's so true. He, he did tell us that he falls asleep listening to our podcast. I uh, don't know what to say about that, but thanks, thanks Papa B for listening <laughs> in any kind of way, <laughs> subconsciously. Okay, we can head on to well, no, nothing. We're gonna head out. Head out. <laughs> Let's get out of this yeah. episode. Yeah, All it. right, don't risk it for that um, sucking biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll know what I mean, guys, if you listen, watch the video. <laughs> okay. All right, Poison Pals, let's all turn this off and let's go watch a cone snail eat a fish. Wonderful. Ready, Bye. go. Bye. Bye.